My senses is that we should pray. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your kindness, your mercy in Jesus Christ. Nothing but the blood could have rendered us righteous. Nothing could have atoned but the precious life of the Son of God. Lord, we have tasted already in this time your grace and your goodness. The joy that is brought to our lives through the life of Jesus. God, we appeal to you. We ask you, having tasted a little, now through your word and through the movement of your spirit through the word, that we would taste more. That you would satisfy hungers, thirsts. That you would restore what has been broken. That you would heal what has been hurt. That you would bring about redemption in lives of bondage. Lord, we appeal to you by your mercy and by the power of your spirit that you would meet us in your word. That you would lead us through it. And you would glorify your son and yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 11. You'll find this on page 406 of your Pew Bible. If you're visiting with us this morning, maybe for the first time, we've been going through a, a consecutive series in this book of the Old Testament. This book called Nehemiah. And Lord willing, we will finish it uh, next week. So looking forward to that. I've been so encouraged myself, and I pray that we all have been helped to see how God builds his people in this book. And we're going to keep looking at that theme today. As I alluded to in my sermon last week, I turned 40 yesterday. I did spend the day in joy and not in weeping. Here's my takeaway from the reflections that yesterday provided me. When God takes your life for his use, it invariably ends up being richer and fuller than anything you could have planned. 20 years ago, I had narrow and myopic views of who I would become and what I would do in this life. 20 years later, I'm thrilled that God took control of me and my life and has produced a depth in my heart and my relationships that I would not have known otherwise. At 40, I praise Jesus Christ for the life I have with him. May it be that if I see 60 or 80, I'm praising him even more. I'm thankful too how God in his providence gave me the opportunity a day after my 40th birthday to preach Nehemiah 11 and 12. In this passage, we find that my experience is not unique. In fact, it is actually reflective of a larger truth found in God's word. That a God-ordered life is a joyful life. My aim is to persuade us to pursue that life individually and together. And so we turn to God's word in Nehemiah chapter 11. And I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots. To bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So like I said just a moment ago, this whole book is about God 
building a people. And the building of the wall is just kind of like a setup. It's like a, it's like a foil for the bigger building project of people that God is doing here. And so we've seen that building project progressing in the events of the book. Nehemiah initially came back to Jerusalem to help build the wall. Once the wall is finished halfway through the book, Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 4 notes that there were still very few people living inside the city walls. But then the narrative for a bit shifted focus to the Jewish people dealing with first things first. So they gathered, confessed their sin, turned to God's grace, and covenanted to walk in obedience with the Lord. A helpful reminder in all that, that if we are going to purpose to live for God, we must first make sure we're living with God in repentance and faith. Now, in chapters 11 and 12, which we'll look at this morning, the people will start making practical steps of a kind to living out their newly professed commitments to the Lord. They will begin moving into the city. So we see that in chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 26. They will formally dedicate the newly completed wall to God in chapter 12, verse 27 through 43. And they will dedicate people and resources to sustain and maintain the ongoing worship of God. Chapter 12, verse 44 through 47. Now, I give you that as a flyover because I will not be reading a large part of the passage this morning. Though it pains me to do so. Most of the narrative tells us the names of the people who moved into the city. So we will discuss the significance of that for them and for us. But I'm not sure that reading the whole list of names will add to our understanding any great deal. So for this part of the sermon, you may find yourself itching for us to get into the text. And we will. But as we begin in chapter 11, verse 1 and 2 that I just read, see that the people are progressing from the promises they made in the last chapter to now proactively, in real-life terms, dedicating their lives to be ordered around God. They were willing for this to happen. They wanted this to happen, even though they recognized it required some pretty major changes. My aim is to convince us to do the same, to order our lives around God. Because a God-ordered life is a joyful life. Now, my outline will follow those two simple observations. First, we'll look at a God-ordered life. And then second, a joyful life. And just know that we'll be in that first point for most of our time this morning. A God-ordered life. Let's, let's begin there. I'm going to read chapter 11, verse 1 and 2 again. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. We notice here first, when we think about a God-ordered life, that a God-ordered life is a life ordered by God. It's a life ordered by God. So inasmuch as the people are taking steps of obedience here, we cannot forget that God is the one who is in the lead. He was the one who put it in Nehemiah's heart to come back to the city, bring order out of the chaos to Jerusalem by leading and building the walls. The chaos we heard about in chapter 1, verse 3, where Nehemiah is told the remnant there in Jerusalem in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, all that is different. And God had done it through them. Thankfully for us, God takes the responsibility of ordering our lives. Even when we have made a mess of them. That he would do this is a reason for us to rejoice in his grace again this morning. No mess too great, no wound too deep, no sin struggle too prolonged, that he will not apply his power to redeem. I wonder if you feel your life is more like Nehemiah 1, with everything in ruin, 
or Nehemiah 11 with everything built and the hope of a thriving existence lays before you. When you look around at your life, do you feel everything is crumbling and desperate or everything thriving and hopeful? Maybe you're somewhere in between. Well, if you know Jesus or you don't, I just just want to offer to you this wonderful truth. One of the blessings of knowing Jesus is knowing the security that God is in good control of your life. That in Christ, as Ephesians 1 tells us, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is one of the many spiritual blessings given to us in Christ. We can rejoice because if our life is ordered by God in this way, then we have every blessing in Jesus. A God-ordered life is a life ordered by God. I would be concerned this morning if you only rest, not in what Jesus has already done and his control over your life, but I would be concerned and encourage you to be concerned if you only rest when things are going according to your plan. What will you do when that changes? Where will you put your faith and your hope? What confidence can you have that you are secure? So a God-ordered life is ordered by God, but a God-ordered life is ordered toward God as well. It's ordered toward God. Of course, in a head-to-head battle against God's will and ours, God will always win. No matter how hard and stubborn the tree trunk may be, the breath of God's spirit can bend it. But what a futile and vain striving a life like that would be. Always resisting the blessing of God's rule and control. Never appreciating the experience of being carried along by his kind providence. But the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ Is that Jesus, the Son of God, came, died, and rose again from the grave to bring us into unity with God's will. To align us with him. To put us behind his plans and his purposes and in agreement with them. And so when we live in that God-given unity purchased for us through Jesus' death, there is now for the Christian the opportunity to live in agreement that comes from our hearts With God's will that says, whatever it takes for you to do, I will gladly accept. God, whatever plan you have devised and created for me as a person and as your person, I will gladly receive. Wherever path you will wander me down in this life through all the days and the years, I know that you have designed it for my good. life God offers us is the chance and opportunity to bring our lives around him. It's like an invitation to come out of the cold, bleak winter and gather ourselves around the red glow and the warm heat of his presence. It's like bringing all the broken pieces of our life that we tried to construct into something on our own without him and him taking those things and in front of our face and with our participation, building a life with him that is so much better than anything we were trying to make on our own. The people in Jerusalem demonstrate how to be open and willing to be ordered or reordered around God. They were willing to let God address their sinful disorder. We saw that in chapters 9 and 10. They were willing to acknowledge that life according to their will had brought ruin. They were willing to hope that there was joy to be experienced despite their checkered past. And willing to trust God's promises that if they returned to him, he would restore them. Now this is all leading us to discovering a joyful life. But I just want to say, we will not find joy in God until we're willing to have our lives ordered around him. This is, if you know the stories that, of the New Testament and Jesus' life and ministry, this is the difference, isn't it, between Zacchaeus 
and the rich young ruler that Jesus encountered. Remember those guys? Two very wealthy men. Zacchaeus came to Jesus, and when he realized who Jesus was, he cleared his schedule, invited Jesus into his home, and gave away all the money he had taken from people wrongly. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, less willing to hear what Jesus had to say, more interested in telling Jesus all the ways the man thought he had appropriately ordered his life independent of Jesus. But Jesus skillfully, as a surgeon of the heart, cuts through all of that and identifies the center of the man's life, his possessions. And the man and Jesus parted because the man would not exchange his love for riches in order to give his heart to Jesus. I remember when my kids were little, they would ask me to get on the floor and play with them whatever game it was they were playing. So whether it was building something out of blocks or Paw Patrol. And I learned as I did that time and time again, many requests. Hopefully I was patient to get down with them anyway, but I, I learned how that would go. What they really wanted me to do is get down on the floor and watch them play. So I would move a block or a Paw Patrol pup, and they'd say, no, Dad, it doesn't go like that. It goes like this. Oh, man, how often we have that same interaction with God, Right? We tell him we want him to be our Lord, and then he puts his hand on something to move it, a relationship, a job, health, a dream, and we immediately say, no, God, it goes like this. To know joy with God, we must be willing for him to pick up the parts of us that he knows need to be reordered. When there is willingness, even just a shred, just think of the man who encountered Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Even just a, a shred of willingness, then a relationship will develop between us and God. An awareness and a conversation together about how we can join him in the rearranging. And what's really sweet is when a, a small willingness spark of it starts over time it will become a fire an overwhelming desire in your heart for him to do this in every part of your life so even if it's small fan it bring the smallest willingness to god and ask him to reorder whatever needs to be reordered reordered so that you might experience this wonderful relationship with him now, how do we go about this God-ordered life ordered toward God? Well, I think Nehemiah 11 and 12, and now we get to get into the text. God uh, teaches us in this passage three ways we can align ourselves with God and the order he is seeking to bring to our life. Three ways. The first way, which we've been looking at in chapter 11, 1 and 2, is that we sacrifice to center our lives around what God is doing and where he's doing it. We sacrifice to center our lives around what God is doing and where he's doing it. So in chapter 11 and 12, you see people moving into the city deliberately. You know, when COVID hit, you probably remember everything changed to working remotely. And people, if you were living in a city at the time, you know this firsthand, people living in, in dense urban environments just, just evacuated. New York City emptied. Why? Because living in the country is more comfortable than living on top of other people. You got plenty of room. You got pace of life that's slower. You got no traffic. Relate to the people in Jerusalem here, in Israel. I think their experience was probably the same. They probably felt the same way. They had their farms in the country. And apparently it seems in verse 1 and 2, they all viewed it as a sacrifice to leave that to move back into the city of Jerusalem. There weren't enough people volunteering, it seems, so they developed a lottery. And 
all the people highly regarded those who volunteered before they were drafted. To center their lives around what God was doing, the people sacrificed their sense of home to order their lives around what God was doing. What could you give up to make God's work more of a priority in your life? And I'm not really talking about little stuff. I'm talking about big stuff. I'm talking about the equivalent of giving up your country life for city life. Sacrifices that completely reorient you away from your job being the center of your life or your biological family or your hobbies. Whatever it is, are you willing to have it removed or reordered? Now, if we were to go through the rest of 11 and into 12 and read all these names, I think when we, when we read those, the, the chief rulers, verse 3 through verse 6, the priests, verse 10 through 14, the Levites, verse 15 through 18, the gatekeepers, verse 19 and 20, the major different families and others, I see and I hear God's word honoring sacrifice for his name's sake. There was one out of ten people in Jerusalem willing to give up their comfort at first. And God decided that he would like the rest of human history to know those names. To know who they were. I think about this in the way that, as Andrew was encouraging us earlier, in the way that I pray through my memory, my membership directory. There I, I find a list of names that, that God has honored by bringing his life into your hearts and bringing us together and having life together here. You are enumerated on those pages. We are just a little bit of the greater universal kingdom where God is doing that. The church here is where God promises to work and through his work in us to bring the gospel to the world. I'm so thankful for how I'm reminded of you as God honors these who made sacrifices for him. We have committed to this, that as long as we are living life here together, we will order ourselves around God, loving God, loving each other, and seeking the good of the lost around us. And so I'm encouraged, as you've committed to this, I am encouraged to see sacrifice so many of you are making to this end. I want to encourage you that this is making a big impact on other people. You may or may not see it. And I think we've only just begun. Through our steady practice of giving up for each other, God is preparing us to take more steps in that direction in the future. I'm sure of it. There is always more of God to be gained. Which also means there's always more of us to be given away. Think about how God would have us give more of our money for the spread of the gospel. Give more of our time for showing hospitality to the least of these. Give more of our comforts in order to be positioned around people who don't know Jesus Christ. If you're on the fringes, either as a, a visitor here and just you feel you're on the fringes of life with God at all or as a member here. Maybe you feel like you're not gaining much by being here. Maybe you thought that you need to go find another church. And I just want you to know that, that in wherever you are, we desire as a church nothing more than for you to thrive spiritually in your life with Jesus. We want more than anything else for you to follow God where he leads you. We do not think that Warnell Road Baptist Church is the church everyone should be at every Sunday in Kansas City. But wherever you land, you need to know that true thriving requires true sacrifice. You must be willing to give in order to gain. One last thing on this. I love how the names of the people settling into Jerusalem encourages us in our sacrifice to see what all our sacrifice the Lord calls us to is for. In eternity, after all, 
everything will revolve around God. It will revolve around Jesus. His throne at the center, just like Lily read to us from Revelation, that vision. There will be people there from all different places and peoples. People who gave up reputation and livelihood and comfort. Some who even willingly gave their lives out of love for Jesus and his people. When we choose to sacrifice now, we live with the eternal home in view. Nothing given will not be remembered by our Lord. Nothing sacrificed will not come unrewarded when we see him. And when you think about the material cost, whatever it might be of following Jesus today, I'd encourage you, picture that vision that John gives us that we read. Picture the glorified faces of others you will see in heaven. Picture the glorified face of our Savior Jesus for whom you sacrifice. When you are there, you you will not question if giving anything was worth it. You will not. You will be joyful and you will be glad that you get to be in that crowd, that you get to look around and see that God chose in his kindness to pick you up and use you and help other people through your sacrifices to get to that place. A life of eternal joy. We order our lives around God by sacrificing to make God and his people the center of our lives. But the second way we pursue a God-ordered life is by thanking God for what he's done. Thanking God for what he's done. And so we move to the next section of the narrative in chapter 12, verse 27, where the people come to dedicate the wall. I'm going to read verse 27 through 30. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then you see in verse 31, they and following that Nehemiah arranges two choirs to kind of go up on the walls on either side of the city to kind of sing at each other and the people are in the middle of the sound and in that they give thanks verse 31 you see that thanks emphasis repeated in verse 38 the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north you see it again in verse 40 so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. Nehemiah organizes a massive praise and worship day in Jerusalem. A day to commemorate God's work among his people. This was a dedication of the place and people to live for God inside these walls. Notice the priority given to making time to praise God and thank him. Think about how the the momentum of their life was already moving. There were things to do. There were houses to build. There was packing. There was logistics. But more importantly, there was a God to be praised. Could they have ever gotten here without him? No. The very walls the choir stood on were heaps of rubble only a few months ago before God in his power started rebuilding them. Were they to have a future in this place, they could not forget where they had come from. Don't forget, Christian. No matter what great things we may do for God, God has done infinitely greater things for you. Never stop thanking him for the gospel, for Christ, for his patience. Never stop singing yourself In wonder and amazement, the questions that rang out of our song, How Sweet and Awful is the Place, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast laid out for us by Jesus, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter into your kingdom while there was room, when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? May we be filled and overwhelmed at thankfulness for what God has done for us in Christ and never stop. 
I trust if God has reordered your life and given you the eyes and the heart to see how good he was to do that, then I imagine you have very little trouble thanking God. Thought about that yesterday as I got to reflect on my life of 40 years. You start to peel back the events and the people, the unforeseen transitions, the, the prayers you never uttered, but God in his grace answered because the spirit groaned on our behalf. It's just, it's astounding to consider that the living God takes such special interest to order our lives. I pray he gives you eyes to see that with thankfulness. And if right now, as you, as you view, view the landscape of your life that has passed, I, I pray that if your view is one of despair, discouragement, leading you to distrust of God, I pray the Spirit would work even today and help you to see Jesus and help you to be overwhelmed in thankfulness. Thanking God for what he has done helps us trust him in what he has yet to do. Thanksgiving, in a way, whets our appetite for the next meal of faithfulness God is going to serve up to us in our life. It might come in the form of trial or test. It might come as blessing or rest. But when it comes, having thanked him repeatedly, we will be able to see immediately that his hands is what's delivering whatever is coming next. A Christian does not need to wait on God to answer our present cries in order to thank him, do we? We only need to look back at the cross of Jesus. Where the cry of so many people under so heavy a curse and burden of sin found a full and final answer in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We don't need to wait on God to deliver us from our sickness, our pain, our sorrows in order to thank him. We need only remember that he rose from the grave. And in that moment, sure promises come to all of us. That though we die in Christ, that we die under a thousand sorrows here. Yet in unspeakable joy, we will rise to life eternal. We are too blessed a people to be lacking in thanks to God. Frame your days around Thanksgiving. Thank God in everything. Start trading in complaints for thanks. Thank God for hard things because of what they are doing in you. Thank God for hard people in your life because of how you are being allowed to model Christ to them. Thank God for disappointments because of how God is drawing you into fuller dependence on him. Thank God for God and how he's ordering your life so that you get to live with him. Through thanks to God, we pursue a God-ordered life. And then thirdly, we live a God-ordered life by serving as priests in God's kingdom. By serving as priests in God's kingdom. I'm going to read verse 44 of chapter 12 down through verse 47. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms. The contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So just keep us on track with what's happening. The people reorient their lives to move in. They have a dedication of the wall that was built. And now they give priority to thinking about how to sustain the worship of God in this place. The priests and Levites were a dedicated group of people set aside to serve the people as facilitators of temple worship. They were ministers. They were servants. 
whose lives were giving to organizing the whole nation around the worship of God. And because their calling required so much time and attention, God instructed the rest of the people to give support both to the sacrificial system and to the priests and the Levites and others who served in the temple. So now, for us, in seeking to apply this to our lives, there are a lot of lessons I, I, get, I think there are. Like, like we could see the parallels between the temple servants in their time and pastors in our time. People like me and Mark, that the church gives financially support so we can give our lives to leading our church in worship. Or the people who regularly serve here to help us in that. Or the deacons who have set apart part of their lives to service in, in, in practical areas in the church. There's a lot there that we could consider. But, but I think there's a bigger and fuller lesson here. And to see it, we got to move forward in time from when this happened to what would then next happen in a big way when Jesus comes. To see its application then to Jesus' people on the other side, us, the church. See, when Jesus came and gave his life as a once and for all sacrifice on behalf of all who would trust in him, he, he effectively kind of ended this and, and replaced it in a, in a in a bigger way. He, he did something better. He put away these old ways of worship. And instituted new ones. Through his sacrifice. So they wouldn't need to, to give. We don't need to give. So that sheep can be slaughtered. To remind us that we have sins that need to be forgiven. Jesus was crucified once and for all. He's the reminder. And he's the place we find forgiveness. And when Jesus finished that work. He ascended back to heaven and he took his place there as the one and only intermediary between God and men. He is our great high priest. Through his death, through his resurrection, through his ongoing involvement in our hearts and our lives, Jesus is purifying and dedicating us, his people, for his service. As if we were all priests. So, you'll see in the New Testament, this priest language comes into being comes in to bear on our life now as God's people. And we are identified by this label, priests. So in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. 1 Peter 2, verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, if and when Jesus bought you with his blood, he had every intention in that act of using what he bought, that is you, to serve his purposes in other people's lives. You and I were saved not for the, just for the eternal good of us, but for the eternal good of others. If you want to think about the job Jesus has for you, Christian, and for us as the local representation of his people, the church, we should think of ourselves as priests. Jesus places us in the life of other people so that we could serve them by helping them to know God. Jesus' sacrifice and service accomplished this in us. We were without God and without hope in the world. And Jesus came and brought us peace in our life with God. This is what Jesus will now, in turn, having done that in you, if you've repented and trusted in Christ, now he will use your life to do the same he has done in you for someone else. Your sacrifice and your service will bring people nearer to God. Help them in that path. So no matter who you are, if you are a Christian, if you have given your life to the rule and lead of Jesus Christ, asking for him to take all your sin and give you his righteousness, your marching orders for your life are for ministry. For service. 
Jesus' life was ordered around the eternal good of others. And this order he brings to our lives. Believer, did you know you had such a noble and dignified position in the kingdom of God? Did you know that you do not need an academic degree of any kind to help people know God and love him? Did you know that it's all the people of God ministering and serving one another that makes a healthy church, not just the quality of the preaching or the music? So how do we act as priests in a practical way this week? Well, we acknowledge that Jesus through the gospel gives each of us something to give to someone else. We can be priests by proclaiming Jesus. How excellent he is. To people who don't know him and to people who do know him but need your encouragement to keep knowing him more. You can be a priest by initiating to spend time in the Bible with someone else. You can be a priest by pulling other priests into a prayer group that prays for our church. You can be priestly in seeing the practical areas of service available in our church and signing up to serve through one of our deacons. You can be a priest in your home by steering conversations to Jesus or the gospel or God's word. Or by loving people in your home selflessly, which helps them to know Jesus' love in a vivid and tangible way. You can be a priest in your neighborhood, seeking for as long as you live on your street or your apartment building. You want to bring God's grace to people through intentional relationships. And here's something really exciting about this, I think. Yes, we as members are all priests in our lives together in this church. And oh, how good that is for us, we know. But God has also placed each one of us in separate arenas, separate areas, separate jobs, separate life situations, separate families to serve there for him. We're, we're all kind of dispersed every week into arenas of priestly service. Places you go, I can't go. People I go to, you can only pray for. And yet one of the joys of life in this priesthood together is to hear testimony of how our life together is helping and supporting each other in carrying Jesus to those places. Beyond. To our world. Church, we are a priesthood. We are purchased and positioned in the city to serve people with Christ. That, that is our sacrifice. And what sacrifice in that do we offer? We offer our lives. Those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ as their Savior and Lord, you have the title of priest conferred on you. That means you are set apart for his service. This is how God orders our lives around him. What a high honor and privilege to bring him to others. Sacrifice, thanks, and service. This is how we order our lives around God. In our last few minutes, let's see how this God-ordered life is a joyful life. Turn to chapter 12, verse 43. After dedicating the wall, look at what kind of comes of it. Verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. If you want to learn how to study your Bible, one helpful tool is just to notice where authors repeat themselves. To understand the emphasis. So in reading that verse, you can see the emphasis. Joy, 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 joy. Coming out of these people as a result of what God has done. See how the author is drawing our attention to the outcome of their dedication. Joy, rejoicing, everybody experiencing joy. The sound of joy echoing beyond the walls. There is a connection between our lives with God in the middle and our lives of peace and contentment. Our experience of joy is dependent on our life with and for God. I kept thinking about that phrase in that verse this week. God had made them rejoice with great joy. If you're like me, uh, you might sometimes think that joy is something like a reward. A reward of our effort 
when we've trusted Jesus more like we know we should and then we get joy? Or, or we sacrifice more and in turn more joy? Or we serve more and a gift of joy shows up on our doorstep? Uh, those are certainly linked as we've seen. But isn't it God who brings us joy in Jesus first? You might be thinking after the first point of this sermon that the main takeaway of the sermon is you going out and sacrificing, thanking God and serving his people. And I do think God in his word tells us to prioritize those things. He wants us to hear that today and pursue it. We must. But what's the motivation? How are we motivated to do that? Is it in the pursuit of an elusive experience that we hope will come after we've done all the things? Is it out of a dogged or dutiful determination to be a better Christian? Is it in the hopes that if we try this, we'll finally get out of the funk of despair or depression? Well, I would encourage us to take a different route. Begin by appreciating Christ because it is Christ who brings us joy from God. And then I think these other things sort of flow out. And we want them. If there's anyone who demonstrates that a God-ordered life is a joyful life, it's Jesus. His orienting concern and passion was to serve his Father, to be placed and positioned on this earth to showcase the grace and mercy of God. He sacrificed his life. He thanked God for everything. He served others until his final breath. He lived in joy. And when he lived here, he wanted you and me to know that life. His life that he lived, he wants for you. The life he had is the life he came here to bring you. Turn to page 903 of your pew Bible or your Bible, John chapter 17. In in John chapter 17... um, Jesus is talking to his father and, and we get to listen in and it's amazing. And, and if you doubt Christian, the love of Jesus for you, go home and read John 17 five times over until it affects your heart by how much Jesus loves you. But in this prayer, Jesus prays this. I forgot to write the verse reference down, so now I need to find it. And it's important that I find it. Yeah, here it is. Look at verse 13. So much that precedes what he says here. and I can't cover it now, but, but now Jesus says to the Father, I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. How does that joy come to fulfillment in us? Well, Jesus clarifies that later in the prayer by Jesus making us one with him. Father, Son, and Spirit. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The starting point for a God-ordered life is appreciating that Jesus reordered everything in his world to make you a life with him. He gave his life to give you not some ambiguous idea of life in an ambiguous heaven, but his way of living for you for today. And joy is at the center of it. 
The kind of life who for the joy set before him endured the trials of the cross. The kind of life that when he hung on a cross, he prayed in love for God to forgive his murderers. The kind of life that brought peace into the chaos and disorder of a sinful world. The kind of life that hungered and thirsted for God and was satisfied in his father. This is Jesus' life. And it was the most joyfully lived life ever. And Jesus knew that his joy was because he gladly ordered everything around his father. That order and that joy from Jesus comes as a gift offered from him to us. When we take it, we take him to live it inside us. The joyful life ordered around God is not something we acquire, but receive. The order he instructs us to pursue, that is merely the treasure map that leads us to the riches of knowing God in Jesus. Is life with Jesus in his joy a treasure that you want? If not, sacrifice and thanks and service will be an order for your life that you will eventually resist. Don't resist. In losing, in refusing to lose yourself to gain Christ, friend, you will lose everything in the end. Better to give up your will against God and give your life to living with Jesus. And I would love personally to talk to you about how you can do that even after the service this morning. Warner Road Baptist Church. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus is our treasure. What a joyful life we have offered to us of sacrifice and thanks and service to others. So let's invest in that field, in that life. And we will find the joy of Jesus buried there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you brought joy to the world. And now we can sing in thanks. And we can go out and sacrifice and service knowing that this is your way. And you've provided Christ and the spirit and your word to help us walk in it. We pray that our lives with you and around you this week would evidence the joy of Jesus Christ. Lead any who are thirsting and hunger to Jesus, we pray. Help them to find joy a true joy, a fulfillment and a satisfaction in him that cannot be found anywhere else. We pray for the glory and honor of Jesus' name. Amen.